You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. I invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 11. I mentioned to you last week that um, the final three chapters of Daniel, chapters 10, 11, and 12, are about a single vision. And uh, last week we looked at chapter 10, which sets the stage or the setting of the vision. The vision itself is here in chapter 11 all the way through chapter 12 to verse 4. That's kind of the content of the vision. And then that leaves chapter 12, 5 through 13, uh, kind of the application or the closing of the vision. I had really hoped to cover... Uh, both chapters 11 and 12 this morning and finish Daniel, but I figured out pretty early on in the week uh, that even if you brought a snack today, I don't think it would have helped any at all, um, that uh, there was just no way to do that. And so we'll have to uh, look at the content of the vision today, chapter 11, all the way to chapter 12, verse 4, and then we'll finish out next week, Daniel 12. I just want to read chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. So this is the ending of the vision uh, for our scripture reading this morning. It says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there has, was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Lord, we pray for your help as always that you would give us ears to hear and minds that can understand and hearts that are willing and ready to receive how you would apply these things to us. And so, Lord, help us this morning and I pray that you would help me as your servant that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Daniel chapter 11 here is um, one of the, the longest chapters in the book of Daniel. For those of you who are visiting today, we've been studying Daniel now verse by verse for several uh, weeks. And uh, we're here at chapter 11. It, it poses quite a challenge uh, to the preacher it is uh, not just for its length, but for some of its content as well. It's a prophetic word, but a lot of which has already been fulfilled in history. And uh, so it's, it has a lot of history in it. And I want to just take a few minutes here at the beginning and kind of summarize this chapter. So it's going to require us to kind of look down at the text, and I would encourage you to do that now. It's mainly about kings that will, and nations that will arise both from the north and the south. So let me give you a few glimpses of that. For example, in verse five, you notice the phrase, then the king of the south. And, and what you have there in verses five and six are a couple of verses about that king and about his reign in history. 
If you look down in verse 7, you'll see the phrase, uh, and another shall arise in his place. Um, Again, and then you have some information about that particular king who rose to power. And then if you look down, for example, chapter 10, you have the phrase beginning, his sons. And so there you have a recounting of how this king's sons are going to reign. So again, the kingdom just passes down one king to the next, to his sons. Verse 11, uh, you notice it says, then the king of the south fights against the king of the north. And so you got all of these verses there about the kings of the south and north fighting with one another. It continues all the way down through uh, verse 20. And so that's a summary, that's a picture of what we, we read here about kings from the south and north who are vying for, for power, if you will. I think one important question to begin with is uh, south and north of what? Who, who are we talking about here? And uh, the, the answer to that uh, in the text, north and south, is, is the people of God. That is, any nations who are north of the the nation and people of Israel and those who are south of that nation. And I think that teaches us something extremely important, something very beautiful here uh, from the very outset. This is Jeff Thomas who, who wrote this quote that helps us. This chapter's perspective, hear this, is that the center of the universe, as far as God is concerned, is his people. That's a beautiful thought, isn't it? The center of the universe, as far as God is concerned, the reference point, it's a remarkable, glorious truth. That includes us, by the way, as the church, as the people of God. God loves this world. We we know that. The scripture says it. But God focuses his redeeming, saving love on his people so that even as this vision of history unfolds with all of these kings and nations it is from the vantage point that the very center of the universe as far as God is concerned is his people we are precious in his sight the hymn says we are loved by God church First John 3, 1 says see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Isn't that glorious this morning? Do you know how much you're loved by God today? Now, John will continue on there and say the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. It's important for us to know about this love of God because, in other words, in this world and in the times in which we live, we may not feel very loved by God. And we are not at all very loved by the world. And this whole vision here in Daniel chapter 10 verse 1 speaks of the fact that as God's people, we are caught up in a great conflict. We are, in fact, objects of scorn, a warfare, if you will, that includes suffering for God's people. And this whole vision is reminding us that as long as the people of God are in the world, that the world will hate us just as it hated our Lord. Whether you look to the north at nations, whether you look to the south, or for that matter, whether you look to the east or west, whether you look in the present past or the future, the story in chapter 11 is going to be conflict and suffering. But make no mistake that in the midst of that, don't ever forget that you are loved by God. So let me try to summarize this chapter without getting too deep into 
the details. First, and these aren't on your outline, so you may want to jot them down if you want. The vision first points us to the instability of history. The instability of history. That seems to be the emphasis of verses 2 through 20. Now you'll notice, if you look down at the text, some of the nations and kings have been named. Verse 2, the nation of Persia is mentioned by name. And at the end of verse 4, You notice Greece is mentioned by name. And then you have several verses there, again, that talk about kings of the south rising up against kings of the north. Now, historians are quite confident with the descriptions that are given in this text that they can pretty much name most of these kings. They've already already happened. Daniel was prophesying these things, but that history has already happened. And so there are many names that that can be listed there. For example, uh, Verse 2, when it says the fourth king, um, we know from history that was a man named Xerxes, if you will. Uh, Verse 3, the mighty king of Greece. Maybe you remember from your world civilization class uh, that that is Alexander the Great, the conqueror. And all the way down for 20, all of these, these kings from the north and south, um, from the, uh, the, the Ptolemies of Egypt who were down in the south who were rulers, all the way to the Seleucids, in the uh, north, in in the country of Syria. All of these kings are readily identifiable from history, and I already see some of the glazing going over, some of you. We could spend time and walk through every one of these in historic uh, sort of fashion, each one of these kings, but I, I really don't want to put you through that this morning. But rather than looking at them individually, I want you to notice the patterns that we see here. Verse 2, for example, notice this pattern. Notice the phrases there. These kings, here's the first phrase, shall arise. Do you see the phrase in the Bible? Verse 2, they they shall become strong. You see the phrase there? And then in verse 4, the phrase, they shall be broken. And, 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 And that particular, those words, or at least those words in some form, kind of occur over and over again as you read these kings. Some of them are gonna rise, uh, this king is gonna rise up, they're gonna become strong for a season, and then they're going to be broken. And over and over again, this will happen. Earthly kingdoms will arise, they will become strong, and then they shall be broken. Ian Dugan, it is commentary, Dugan uh, summarizes it this way. He says, on one level, it is the continual story of wars and rumors of wars. That, we've heard that before, right? As one human ruler and empire after another seeks to gain power by cunning or force, and yet, in the end, it accomplishes nothing. The balance of power in earthly politics may shift, but it never leads to a permanent rest. As long as you read this litany here in chapter 11, you go home and read it this afternoon um, before your nap or in the middle of your nap, I don't know. But there's, a, there's an element of futility in this. I mean, it's just a cycle. It's just one king comes up and gets strong and then he's broken and it's just over and over again. There's a futility in in this cycle and and that will characterize our world. It has characterized it and it will characterize our fallen world until the very end. That is, until the final kingdom of our Lord is established. 
And so we see this instability that's there, this changing, and, and ultimately, if you want to write the word emptiness of human history there. Secondly, though, we see the intensity of history. The intensity, and, and that's seen in verses 21 through 45. And by intensity, what, what I want you to remember there is that things are gonna get progressively worse. We've already been seeing this in Daniel, this message. But all of these kings lead up to verse 21. You notice the phrase there, uh, suddenly there is a contemptible person. That's what the text says, verse 21. You see the phrase? There's a contemptible person who comes as a king and reigned uh, and reigns. This is uh, uh, the little horn, I think, that we talked about in Daniel chapter eight. You remember this man, his, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. And he is one that came in 168 BC, about 168 years before Christ came. And you remember um, what a bad man this was. There's a synopsis of his reign, verses 22 through 24, but we get down to 28 and we begin to see the objects and the subjects of his hostility. Verse 28, notice the verse, the phrase, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. This king, Antiochus, will be unique in that he will set himself against God and the holy covenant of God. And then in verse 31, we read these verses. Forces from him shall appear and they profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. You, you remember from chapter eight, this Antiochus was the one who went into the holy of holies in the temple a place where only the priest could go once a year, where the ark was, the altar of God was. And this man, he sacrificed a pig to the God of Zeus on that altar. That wasn't all. He outlawed the worship of God. He took away all of their burnt offerings, it says. He pretty much forced people to worship God, uh, other gods. And those who refused and remained faithful to God, notice verse 33. Here's what the outcome was. Sword and flame, captivity and plunder. So it's talking about a time, there's a 12-year period of time there in history, around 168 B.C. or so, where this is the choice that people of God face. Either you could be a living pagan or a dead Israelite. You choose. As bad as that period of time was, Gabriel, the angel here, is given this vision. He promises Daniel that things are going to get even worse. We're introduced, notice verse 36, to another king. And, and the transition there is so abrupt, it almost seems like we're still talking about Antiochus. But the things that this king does in the description there, verses 36 through 45, are things that Antiochus didn't do. Antiochus didn't exalt himself above every god, reject the gods of his fathers, or worship an unknown god as verse 38 says, no, no, Antiochus was, he didn't do those things, but this man was something worse. Verse 41, he shall come into the glorious land, that's the land of God's people, and tens of thousands shall fall. Uh, verse 44, he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. 
So if Antiochus was an evil, terrible person, he was a prototype of apparently somebody who's coming that's going to be worse than him. Someone I think he's talking about here is the Antichrist, the man of sin, the man of lawlessness from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the final ruler that will come before Christ. And Gabriel here is telling us this, the angel giving us Daniel this vision, he's telling us this in advance so that we won't be dismayed by these things. It's as if he's saying to to us as God's people, I want you to be prepared. In this world, you will have trouble, tribulation. But I don't want you to think too much about this tribulator Because though he may be terrifying, he'll easily be disposed of by God. That brings us to the third thing, the inevitability of history. The inevitability of history. We glimpse it like in uh, verses like 45, the very last verse there, chapter 11, referring again to the Antichrist. Yet he shall come to his end and none to help him. Don't you like that verse, church? Amen. He shall come to his end. That's a glorious word. There's other phrases, by the way, in chapter 11. You could probably find even more. But for example, at the end of verse 24, referring to the rule of Antiochus, that bad guy just mentioned, it says his reign will only be for a time. For a time. You see, all of those phrases like that, there are more, they remind us that behind this flow of history, of all of these kings and nations rising, falling, and so forth, that there is a God who is controlling the times and seasons. Man makes his plans, you see, but... God intervenes. God determines and deposes kings. Evil will only be for a time. It will have its time, but but one day God will bring history to a close. He will usher in his kingdom once and for all, you see. And And though we as God's people are often caught up in these conflicts, sometimes we're even in the crosshairs of them. God is working out his purpose for his people in all things. I'll go back and think about that truth from Romans chapter 8, verse 35, that, that, that essentially says that we may indeed taste tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, uh, nakedness, danger, and sword. But the good news is none of those things can thwart God's love and plan for his people. None. What a great God. All of that sets the stage uh, for the encouragement and the climactic word uh, that we see here in Daniel chapter 12, the text that we began reading. And uh, I, I, want, I want to quote again from Thomas, who's helpful here. The story of Daniel's, we're closing in, cannot end with the destruction of the Antichrist because the mighty works of God do not end there. The climax, he says, is doxology. Praise, isn't it? He goes on, the book of Revelation, you think about this, ends with a choir singing praise to God. 
Uh, it is not enough that the enemy of God is conquered. Uh, here's how Thomas says it. You do not magnify God by saying that he succeeded in crushing a worm. <laughs> the book of Daniel ends with the cosmic triumph of Christ over death itself. And the last chapter of Daniel contains a message of new hope. That's what these words are meant to be for us. That God has not forgotten his people. That God loves us, and though difficult days of suffering are certainly in, in the, the, the realm of things, God has not forgotten us. He's not abandoned us. He loves us. And these final verses here of, of the vision, Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, are a great reminder of that love. Now walk through these four verses uh, uh, with me this morning. First of all, notice this. Notice we are a helped people. We're a helped people, verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, it says. Now, when he says at that time, he's talking about these final days of the Antichrist and when he's going to be unleashing this evil program on God's people. So bad, he says, that never has it been since there was a nation till that time. But notice, in the midst of this, at that time shall arise Michael, it says, the great prince who has charge of your people. Michael, we saw in chapter 10, the angel whose name means who is like God. And Michael is an archangel. We're told he's described there as the great prince, also the great prince in chapter 10. He's mentioned other places in the Bible, Jude chapter 9, where we are told that Michael is contending with the devil, disputing him with him over the body of Moses. This is an angelic warrior from God. And he apparently has charge of guarding the people of God. Revelation chapter 12 verse 7 mentions him that he is the leader of the heavenly host who were making war on the dragon and his evil angels who were seeking to harm God's people. In other words, church, we can be very grateful today that Michael is on our side. Amen? Amen? He's an archangel. And if we just had him, we would have every reason to be encouraged. But it's not just him, church. There's a host with him. We're told in Matthew 26, 53, there are legions of unseen angels who serve our heavenly Father. And these angels have been tasked with sustaining and ministering to the people of God in their darkest troubles. And right here in verse 1, we see an example. At that time, your people shall be delivered. We are a people most beloved by God, church. We're a helped people. Now secondly, notice we're a known people. Who exactly is it that will be delivered by God? Well, he answers verse 1, doesn't he? Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Uh, this is not the membership role of the church. This is the membership role of heaven that he's speaking about here. 
This is the Lamb's book of life. This is God's elect, the list of God's elect, the saved, the citizen list of the kingdom of God, those who are repenting of their sins and looking to Jesus in faith for their salvation. And we're tempted to think, uh, we may be tempted to think anyway, in points of history, as things begin to grow more and more intense and difficult, it becomes harder and more costly to follow God in faithfulness. And, And even when the world begins to turn on us and treat us like scum, like we're disposable people, people to be cast aside and even put to death, Gabriel here is reminding us of something extremely important. Though, as 1 John 3, 2 says, we may be unknown to the world, we are known to God. He has not forgotten Our names, it says, are written in his book, graven on his hands, inscribed on his heart. There's a reason Jesus told his disciples, Luke 10, 20, rejoice that your names are written in heaven, he said. Third, notice we are a vindicated people. How are God's people going to be delivered vindicated in this conflict. Verse 2 gives us a hint. It says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now this is most assuredly a reference to the final resurrection. That is, the, the time of trouble as it's brought to an end, that there's going to be the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and there's going to be a resurrection of the dead. Notice, notice that. Think about that for just a moment. Notice deliverance, the deliverance and help that's talked about here for some is going to come by a resurrection. You understand what it means that they weren't delivered from, right? It means that many believers who were delivered in, in this life will be delivered uh, not in death, per se, or from from the trouble. In the context of chapter 11, there there were many who will not submit to the spirit of the Antichrist. They will be faithful to God and they will lose their lives because of it. And it will appear that time to the world, it will appear to those evil people, they have been victorious over God. They have stomped these Christians out and the truth. But make no mistake, the faithful of God will be vindicated in the end by the resurrection. God and his people will have the last word. That's what this is saying to us. So when Jesus comes, there'll be a resurrection of the dead. Gabriel says some will be raised to eternal life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. That means for those who suffered at the hands of the wicked, uh, the good news is, is that God is going to make things right. He's going to raise them from the dead to eternal life. He's going to vindicate them. And, but he will, notice also, he will punish the evildoers. Notice they'll be raised but they'll be raised to a perpetual state of shame, guilt, separation from God, and punishment. God will vindicate his people. Don't just take Daniel's words for this, by the way. Hear our Lord Jesus 
In John chapter 5, he said this, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. That's kind of sobering, isn't it? At Christmas time, to hear, to hear this, the, the Christmas season, we talk about this message, it's, it's not just simply for sentiment. No, we're celebrating the child in, in a manger. Brian Chapel writes, we celebrate the ch- child in the manger, but we're also declaring the coming of the one who will judge the world. And so there's an encouragement here, but there's also a warning here, isn't there? Don't presume that you're okay. Don't presume that you're, just because your name's written in a, a church roll somewhere, uh, or, or that you think your good works are going to outweigh your bad when you stand before God, or you got your own plan of salvation in your mind of how you think this is going to work out, and you're going to save yourself. No, the scripture is very clear, isn't it? Only those who are in Christ, who have been saved by him, delivered by them, whose names are in his book, only those have no reason to fear. Fourth, we are an encouraged people. Verse three, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Notice how the wise are described there. They're described as those who turn many to righteousness. That means that they're influencing or encouraging other people to to turn to God, to stay faithful, to stay righteousness. There may be an evangelistic element there, but I think the emphasis, as as I I read it, is is a call to encourage one another as believers. That during these difficult days, as history intensifies and as pressures from the outside mount for us to veer from God's word, to trust in ourselves, to not walk in faithfulness, that we need each other now more than ever before to encourage one another. Hebrews 10, I think, said that too, right? He says, don't, don't, don't forsake the meeting together, that we might encourage one another and all the more as the day approaches. Antiochus, back in chapter 11, verse 33, said that during the days of Antiochus, the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble. That tells us that there's a great risk in the pressure of these times for believers to stumble. And the call here is for us to be encouraging one another not to stumble in this time. Well, that kind of encouragement can make a huge difference in to faltering saints. Amen? Anybody ever receive that? Davis recounts a story from the year 1540 when two Scottish Christian men, Alexander Kennedy and Jerome Russell, they were condemned to be burned at the stake because of their faith. And as they're plotting and making their way, being led to the stake, Alexander noticed some signs of discouragement, depression in his friend, and here's what he told them. Here's the words that were recorded to him. He says to him, Brother, fear not. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. 
The pain that we're are suffer, about to suffer is short and shall be light, but our joy and consolation shall never have an end. Death cannot destroy us, for it has already destro- been destroyed by him for whose sake that we suffer. And together they went to the stake. Man, what a help it is I pray to God we never have to be led to the stake, but what a help it is when you're, when you're stumbling and when your legs get kind of wobbly in the faith and they do happen and it gets hard to have brothers and sisters who come and encourage you and turn you to righteousness. Church, we need to be about this ministry, amen? And, and, and we need to continually be about this ministry. Part of it is looking out for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who are discouraged. You're listening among your fellowship times for those people who may be discouraged. Part of it is, is when you see someone sitting alone in the church or you see somebody alone anywhere in the church, for that matter, to go and introduce yourself and to encourage them. When you notice someone who usually sits around you, and I know you've got your seats, somebody who sits around you is not there, maybe for a week or two weeks, uh, is saying, you know what, I need to call and check on them. I need to make sure that they're doing okay. It's taking the initiative to do that. If someone is going through a difficult time, it's coming alongside them. And, and perhaps this word from Daniel, it reminds us, we remind one another, hey, you know what, we're a helped people. Did you know that? Look here in the scripture. We're a vindicated people. We're an encouraged people because the Lord our God loves us so much greatly loved finally notice we are a prepared people verse 4 Daniel's told to preserve this vision he says but you Daniel shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase there's a lot of debate about again what these verses might mean but I think it simply means that he's uh, the first part anyway is is Daniel there's coming a day when God's people are going to need to hear these words make sure they're sealed up and protected preserved for that time um it's it's again he's he's warning us he's preparing us for this Ferguson put it like this they may not have access to the details of God's planning but they know God has a plan and that he's faithfully fulfilling that plan helps to know that that last statement ooh, challenging many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase it's it's challenging but but, but it, it kind of connotes an idea of thoroughness and, and maybe the best I can, I, I can do is if, if one gives himself or herself to understanding, then knowledge will uh, increase. But the, but the idea, I think, in the context, is not just that our knowledge will increase, is that our security and assurance will increase. In other words, we, we remind ourselves of the clear message that is here. We remind one another, we are a a people who are known by God, loved by him, helped by him. We need to keep reminding ourselves and one another of this over and over again. One day, we will be vindicated in resurrection glory. And so we're a people that have much to be encouraged about. 
Davis put it like this, Yahweh is so God-like in this passage. No sooner does he mention unheard of distress that is coming, he peppers the text with tokens of our security that no church-crushing, saint-smashing regime can remove the names written in the indelible ink of God's book. Now, this is what helps us to sing the Lord's song in a strange land, as the psalmist put it. In in times when it looks like the world's kind of falling apart here, we're we're on the wrong path, it's going downhill, things aren't getting any better. Strange, difficult times. How do we keep worshiping and singing? This helps us, this knowledge. And it adds an incredible context to the Christmas season that we're in. Maybe you're here this one, you're thinking, this is the weirdest Christmas sermon I've ever heard in my life. What in the world? This has everything to do with Christmas church. This, one pastor said it like this. I read this this week. This, this is a beautiful thought. Christmas is a declaration to all tyrants that their days are numbered. That's what this is saying, isn't it? This is is the message. We need to believe that, church. We need to believe that truth, that message. The king of kings has been born. This feudal cycle of all these kings and evil kings even. Boy, Christmas is the beginning of the end. For, for them. And so when you sing these Christmas songs, you know, again, this is not, it's not just where, yeah, there's fun and the, the sentimentality of it all, but that, that's, we're singing about something much greater than that. When we're singing about angels we have heard on high, we are rejoicing in the fact that the scripture says there's a host of angels who are guarding and keeping us as God's people. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? Or when we're singing a song like Joy to the World, we think about the fact that, I love that third verse, that our God rules the world with truth and grace. May not look like it every time, but he's ruling. In fact, he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. And when we get to that line and we sing in wonders of his love and we sing it again and we repeat that, we're reminded of this, all the wonders of his love, church. Do you know how much he loves you? Be encouraged by this today and go and encourage someone else with these words today about the love God has for his people. Well, perhaps you're here today and it maybe has struck a thought in you that you may not be among those who are known by God in his book. And I want to challenge you with a couple questions in closing. Do you want to be? Is there something in you that says, I I want to be in that book? The second question I'd ask you is, will you pray to be? If you want to be, it stands to reason to me that you would say, you know what, I'm I'm willing to pray for this. God, put my name in your book. The third question I would ask you, and this is the most important of all, all, I think is, 
Will you pray to receive his son Jesus into your life as your Lord and Savior? Because you see, that is the only way. That is the only hope that any of us have that we're in this book. Will you? Will you right now? Why would you put this off another moment? Will you right now pray and ask God to save you through Jesus Christ who died on the cross and rose again for you? Lord, thank you from, again, from a very a difficult text and word that we see so much hope and so much love. I pray that we would be encouraged by these things this morning as the people of God. But I pray especially for those that might, it might not have occurred to them this morning that they may not be a part. Lord, you would help them to pray and to pray to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. Work in their hearts, Lord, to that end. Work in their hearts of our friends and neighbors and family members to that end. And we pray that for your glory. And in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark, and if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.